Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where I talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Uh, we're going to be starting 1 John this week. We looked at the context last week, so if you missed that video or that podcast, please go back and watch it and then jump into this one. But we are going to talk a little bit about um, the history and the context as we go into this today. Um, because we're, we're looking at some letters from the end of the New Testament era, right? So we have end of the first century. Um, this is a long time removed, relatively speaking, from the time of Jesus. Jesus was in the 30s. That's that's when he, he ministered. That's when he went to the cross. This was written, you know, towards the end, maybe the, the, the 80s, the 90s. Some scholars even put it as late as 180. Um, but really, we're talking like there, there's been two or three generations of Christians. So the, the context and the, the, the reason for writing and all that, it, it's much different than what we've been studying in Paul, who was writing within, you know, 15, 20 years of Jesus. You know, he's writing to the initial Christians. He's the one planting the new churches, bringing churches, the, the, the message of Jesus to new places. John, on the other hand, is he's writing to people who either might have been grown up as, as a Christian or might have... Um, you know, their, their parents or they had family who was. It's not that the world was culturally Christian to them by any means, but it means that there's, he's writing to people where, Christians where um, complacency has started to creep in and some heresies have started to creep in. So First um, John is different from Second John or Third John, um, but they're all written by the Apostle John as best we can tell. Like there's no way to definitively say this was the same John from the Gospels, uh, the brother of James, sons of Zebedee, you know, he's, we can't definitively say that because it's, it doesn't say that about itself. There's not enough evidence to definitively say that. But we're relatively uh, certain that's who this is. Like, and, and as you read it and you read, you compare the Gospel of John, which we're pretty certain was that guy, we're, we're fairly certain that this is that John. Um, the date, as I discussed, was at the end of the first century. This is before he wrote Revelation. We're certain of that. This is before his exile to Patmos at the end of his life at the hands of the Romans. But it was, we're not really sure whether it came before or after the Gospel of John. I personally, when I read them, um, I think it came after just because it seems like 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John are building on concepts that were a lot more fully explained in the Gospel of John. Um, but again, no way to know that for sure, but it just, Kind of one of those things that you know you can think about and might help you understand a little better. Um, audience, it was written as a circular letter. Think of First John more as a uh, a sermon than a than a letter. It is a letter, but it's it doesn't fit your typical letter formatting. There's no introduction. There's no bye bye kind of deal. It's it's more of a sermon meant to be passed around. And Second John and Third John are more like formal letters that. I kind of think we're accompanied with it. Like this is the one that you read to the public and this is the one that was to a specific group and this is one that was to a specific person. Um, but again, it's so it was written to be passed around, right? The way a sermon is supposed to be passed around to the churches in southeast Turkey. So John was based in Ephesus at this time. Um, and so that's, that's what he was doing. He was kind of like the leader, uh, a bishop, an elder in Ephesus. Uh, and he was kind of writing something to be passed around to all the churches that kind of were under his purview. Um, and the purposes, again, he's just writing to address heresies and to explain things and you know do what every sermon does, point to Jesus. And we're going to look at those, those purposes and the things he, he wrote for. But uh, the context of the heresies, I do want to mention quickly because they do come back up. And 
We talked about them last week, and a lot of people were like, uh, "What? I don't really fully understand that." Um, so again, Gnostics—that's the big group he's 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 having problems with infiltrating the church. And Gnostics were big on secret knowledge. Just very quickly, in a nutshell, they believed in secret knowledge. They believed that the physical world was bad and the spiritual world was good, and so you had this kind of attitude of of everything in this life is bad, and so that played out in different ways. Um, they looked at people who they thought would never ever become fully spiritual as like less than. They looked down on people. That's anti-Christian. Um, and viewing the physical world as bad is anti-Christian. That goes against the message of Jesus. Uh, they believed in secret knowledge and secret rituals. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going over this a million miles an hour. But the one that comes up today is docetism. And it's that, uh, that idea that the physical world is bad and therefore Jesus being good, being God... He couldn't have been physical, and so a docetic view is that Jesus just appeared to be physical. And we'll see how John directly addresses that uh, in today's introduction. Um, we're not going to go very far. We're going to go to verse 4. Um, and so it's. let's go ahead and read it, and uh, we'll go from there. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed at, our, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life that life was displayed and we have seen it and bear witness and we announce to you the life of god's coming age which was with the father and was displayed to us that which we have seen and heard we announce to you too so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus the messiah we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete uh, there was a reporter back in 1919 who visited Soviet Russia, and he came back and famously said, I have seen the future, and it works. His name was Lincoln Steffens. Um, and what he did was he, he went to Russia, and he saw the, the socialist, the, the communist regime, and he, he looked at their ideas, and he thought, that's the future. That's the way everybody's going to get to, right? These Russians have figured it out. They've taken Karl Marx's idea. They've played it out. That's the future. Like, he was... He, he, was, he was basing his idea on an attitude that, you know, was very prevalent in his day and age. Looking back now, we know that, that communists end up making things worse, right? Uh, it's, it's very anti-Jesus, anti the things that, that are, are the values of God and the values that you should have as a human being. Um, communism just doesn't work and it ends up, it, it only works at the cost of millions of lives. That's, that's the way it's played out every single time. But his sentiment of he has seen the future and it works, well, that's what John's doing here. John's starting out this letter, this sermon, by saying, I have seen the future. I've seen the way things play out. I've seen the way humanity is going to go, and it works. See, he, he was playing on uh, a Jewish worldview at this time. You know, John was Jewish. He grew up in Galilee as, as a Jewish man. He had a Jewish worldview, even though it had evolved into a Christian worldview by this point, for sure. Um, but the Jewish worldview was that the present age was an age of misery. That, you know, especially from a Jewish perspective, um, everything, there was just nothing but suffering and oppression. It was a miserable age. And Christians, we kind of have that same view that the world is not as it should be, right? It's not that the world is bad or that there's there's no beauty in it and that there's nothing good about it. That's that's not what Jesus and the Bible teaches, but that there is suffering here that shouldn't be here. That there are bad things and corrupt things that are here that shouldn't be here. And John is saying that 
in the age to come, God will make all things right. There will be no more misery. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. And that's what he says he sees in Jesus. He sees that new age, that new life. He saw that in person. And he has seen the future, and it works. That's what John is announcing with this, this message. So uh, let's break down into the three parts, the three things we can learn from this short section of First John. The first is that Jesus was from the beginning, right? He's making and asserting that Jesus is divine. The only thing that has no beginning is, is God himself. Everything else has a start. God doesn't. And I know like for our minds, we can't grasp that because we're temporal. We have, we, we view the world in a straight line the way you watch a movie. Like we see the beginning, we see the end. Everything has to have a beginning. Everything has to have an end. But God operates outside of time. He's not temporal. He's, he, he has no start. He has no end. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus has no beginning. So he's asserting that Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's one of the three heads of, of God. Um, the second thing that John asserts is that Jesus actually entered into the world of man. So divine being, that God himself has entered into our world, into our temporal world, defined by time, physical world, that he entered into it, came down and slummed it with the rest of us, right? The third thing is that through that entry, Humanity can now grasp at that age to come. We have seen what eternal life looks like because it came and lived among us. Like, let that sink in that eternal life, God Himself, divinity, the Creator, came and lived among us. And because of that, we can now start to partake in that eternal life. That we can start to partake and become one with the divine. I'm not saying we become God. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying is that that eternal life, what is given to Jesus is given to us. That's, we get to see that. We can now finally grasp that. Whereas before Jesus, we couldn't. It was completely hidden from us and there was no way for us to grasp it. And so in order to make that message, to make those claims, John establishes his credibility. He says that he has heard Jesus right? John, this is a big reason why we, we think this is John the, uh, the apostle, the brother of James, son of Zebedee, because he makes these claims that only somebody who was there could make. He says, we have heard Jesus. You know, faith comes through hearing. He, he heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus' voice on the cross. He heard all the things that Jesus said. He records some of them, just a small portion of them in the Gospel of John, but he heard him firsthand. He's not telling you what somebody told him the way I am. That's all I'm doing. I'm telling you what somebody told me, you know, and somebody told them. Like, I'm going back 2,000 years of the telephone game, basically, except for we have John's writing, right? This is John. That's Thank God for the New Testament. Thank God for the Bible, because we get their words directly. I don't have to play the phone game for 2,000 years. Like, I can read what John heard and saw for myself, and that's what we're doing, right? And think about that. That's crazy. We're writing, reading the words of somebody who saw it firsthand, who heard it firsthand. So John heard Jesus. Next thing he says is he saw Jesus. He has seen Jesus. And that means he was actually witness to Jesus firsthand. He saw it with his own eyes. It wasn't, again, it's, it's not secondhand. He saw it. Then he says he gazed upon Jesus. 
which almost seems like he says the same thing twice, but he's really not. And this is one of those language barriers. You know, John is writing in Greek, um, which by all accounts, John was very gifted with the Greek language. He, he, was, he was very well written, whereas some of the authors in the New Testament, not so much. Um, but he was very good at it. And so when he uses two different words for to see, there's a reason for it, right? And so the first word he used to see is um, heorakamen, heorakamen. Um, which, again, I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation, but it's not important that you remember the word. Just remember the difference. And that means to physically see with your eyes. Herao, I believe, is the, the root word, and it's, 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 that's, that's what that means. It's physically see. Gazed upon is etheasametha. Um, again, not important that you know the word. Just to know the meaning of it. And the meaning for this word uh, is to look at until you grasp or understand it, right? So it's more, it's more almost to, to perceive and understand something, to grasp something. It's not just to look at it, but it's to, to grasp it, to understand it, to, to have its meaning, its value be understood by you, right? Um, it's used a couple other times in the New Testament. In Luke 7.24, um, when John Jesus said this, why did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. The word he uses there to see when he's accusing these um, Pharisees um, or in, uh, accusing the crowds there. Why do, he's, he's, he's saying to them, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to understand? Like it's more than just to look at. He's saying, did you, what, what did you go out there to really grasp? Right, and John one fourteen, uh, John uses this word again. He says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, and glory as of the Father from the Son, full of grace and truth." And he says, "We have seen His glory." I mean, we have grasped it. We have, we have, we've taken more than just we saw it. Like we understood it. Right. So the difference there is John is saying we have seen Jesus, but we've also understood Jesus. We've grasped Jesus. We know the value of Jesus. And then he finishes up this by saying he touched Jesus. Now, this isn't like a weird, like modern understanding of to say to touch somebody. This is, this is an attack on docetism. This is an attack on the Gnostics because they would say that Jesus wasn't physical, so you couldn't touch him. If you read some of the, the Gnostic Gospels, um, the, they, the, they talk about how sometimes they touch Jesus and like their hand would just go through him like he was a ghost. Like, you know, the, it, it was trying to say that because he was good, because he was God, he couldn't be physical. But John is saying, no, he was a human being. He was a man, all right? He was physical like us, right? And so John establishes his credibility. He establishes his message. What, then he states what his goals are for writing this little sermon letter. Um, he says, number one is he wants to produce fellowship. In verse three, fellowship first with his community and himself with his readers, right? He wants to establish the Christian brotherhood, sisterhood. He wants to establish community because let's be honest, that's what we're doing as Christians. Like if you come to church and you just hear a message and that's it, like you come in, you hear the message, you leave, stop coming to church <laughs> because that's not the point. That's an event. You can get that on YouTube. You can get that with the best preachers in the world from your couch. Why would you come to church for that? That's not the point. No offense to any other preachers out there, and but I know that most of us aren't world-class speakers. Most of us aren't amazing orators. Like there's very few of those in the world and even fewer of them fill pulpits. 
if you come to church just to hear a message, you're wasting your time because that's not what the Christian community is about. The word church itself means a community, a group that is gathered together around a central idea, around a central meaning and purpose. The Christian community has to be community. And John is saying, that's, the, that's my goal for this. He wants his readers to be in community with him and his group of believers, his community. And we as Christians today, and in large part in the West, we have missed that. We think that the whole point of church is to come in, hear a message, sing some songs, give your money, and leave. And that's not church at all. <laughs> church is about the connection with each other. What happens on Sunday morning is absolutely essential to our Christian walk. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely 100% essential to your daily walk, your, your spiritual walk, your weekly walk. But you have to be part of the community, and that doesn't happen sitting and listening. That happens connecting with people, right? That's, that's just the bottom line here. The second thing he wants to produce fellowship in is fellowship with God and his readers. And again, that comes from the theological. That comes from the community. That comes from uh, the message. That comes from Jesus. Like it, That's his goal for this is that you will be drawn into community with God as well as with other believers. The second thing he says is he wants to bring joy. And this is another thing that we forget. Like we, we either focus too much on joy or we don't focus on it enough. Like to, to truly preach the gospel, you have to preach that there is right from wrong, that we all deserve hell. We all deserve to be separated from God because we have rejected the standards of a perfect God, that we have rejected living our lives the way that he would want for us, the way that he designed us to live. You break, you break perfect law against a perfect God, and that, that de deserves eternal separation from Him. That deserves punishment. That deserves hell. And I don't say that to scare you, but the reality is you have to be aware of how much you need Jesus. Bottom line. That we all sin, that we all fail to meet God's standards in our lives with our with our, our our spouses, with our kids, at our jobs, with the way we treat people, the way we interact with people, the way we spend our money, the way we treat our stuff, the way we what we view with our eyes, what we view, listen to with our ears. We all fail in so many ways to live up to God's standards. And if you fail in one single way, in one single instance, you've committed an unforgivable crime, basically except God sent his son to save you for that, to pay the punishment that you can't pay because he never broke a single one of those laws. He never lived below God's standards in any way. And because of that, when he made his sacrifice on the cross, he pays the debt that we all owe. And the result is joy. It has to result in joy that we're saved I mean, look at somebody who faces certain death and at the last second they're pulled from that. Uh, there's going to be joy in that person's face, right? That person's going to be excited because they thought they were done for and they realized that the, and at the last second they were saved. That's the message of Jesus, that each and every one of us were done for, heading for destruction, but at the last second God sent his son to save each and every one of us, to pay the penalty for us, to pay the punishment for us, to go die for us, and we get the reward instead. There has to be joy as well as godly sorrow. You have to understand how far you fall, what you deserve, but you also have to be 
you have to be led to that joy of Jesus. And if you aren't having joy in your life because of Jesus, then it's time to, to step back and, and reevaluate. And we're going to be looking at that in, in this letter a lot. Um, and the last thing that John wants to do, the goal for this letter, is he wants to set his testimony of Jesus before his readers. He wants to spell out the message. He wants to spell out this is who Jesus really is. Because at this point, remember, we're talking 60 plus years after the time of Jesus, people have started to twist it. People started to say crazy things about him, as we looked at with the Gnostics, the Docetists. But he's, he wants to like kind of give, okay, let me reiterate for you, this is who he really is, this is what he really did, and I can tell you this because I was there firsthand. Like That's that's the last goal, is he wants to set the te- his testament of who Jesus is before his readers. And so this is, this is that's where we're going to stop for today. We're just going to get to verse 4, but uh, I hope this gets you excited to do the rest of this study because there's a lot to this. First John is one of the most powerful letters in the New Testament. Uh, it really is convicting and really uplifting and motivating for us as we go about our Christian lives, as we continue to draw closer to Jesus, to God. And so if you have any questions, as always, reach out. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.